0: Beyond Meat, due 2027, it's trading at 25, so 25 cents in the dollar, yielding 36%. This is a company that produces plant-based meals that have their executives eating people's faces. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Douglas, that like to debate about investing content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Skippy, what do the kids these days keep it? 100. That's right, baby. They be keeping it 100. Why am I bringing
1: that up? Because we're keeping it 100 on the 100th episode of the Skippy and Diggles show.
0: That was
1: the... (laughs) That was the Dougal's ham horn. <laughs> it's amazing. We made it. I don't know how we made it, but we made it. Let me throw some stats your way. So, we have been downloaded in 65 countries over the last almost two years. We have, I, did we get how many different individuals have sent us listener mail? But we have some individuals that send us listener mail like 20% of the time. Absolutely amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Our top downloaded countries are the following. Obviously, the United States, followed closely by Canada, Germany, France, Guatemala. Shout out to the Guatematians. Guada... They've, Guad- Guad- <laughs> they've been here f- since the beginning. Guatemala has I mean, been with us from the start. Yeah, Early on, man. Switzerland, Australia, Norway. Shout out. We are so thankful. This, I think we need to go to the thank you part of the show. We made it to 100 episodes. First and foremost, premium subscribers. You guys are the best. We're running a promo this week that we'll talk about in a little bit. But if you're an existing subscriber and you're not getting that promo, shoot us an email. We'll figure that out. We'll make sure you get the, the best deal there. Our guest, Dougals, we've had author William Green on the show. We've had managing partner at Range Ventures, Adam Burrows. We need to have Adam back. Great guy. We've had journalists from Wall Street Journal and Financial Times, James McIntosh. Work. Managing partner at Validia Capital, uh, Justin Carbono. And
0: most recently, David W. Marks, the author of Status and Culture. That's right. And what one thing I've so awesome list, like and fantastic conversations, enjoyed it with all of them. And one thing I really love about the way uh, we've had the guests on is it's just like we have a topic. We think a topic is interesting and decide to bring on the person to talk about that topic. It just felt it's like pretty cool, at least for me to be able to with a friend of mine, you know, of 20 years, to be able to yeah. then pull in folks um, that are. You know, world world renowned out there in the world for whatever reason to have conversations with us. So I've really enjoyed that. Um, I'll also just say for one moment, because most of my time I spend breaking you down. For one moment, I just want to say it's been awesome talking to you every week, right? Like for about these topics, like it's just been it's been super cool to have these conversations every week. We've been having these conversations for quite a while, but not on a weekly basis, right? Until now, and it's just been really nice.
1: Yeah, I I second that um this has been a blast um i'm so thankful for dougles, which is hard to say because in the pre-show meeting you're giving me a hard time i was ready to come at you and then you disarm me with that kindness i don't really know how to handle it but, Yeah, they call uh, me that they call me the velvet hammer <laughs> no one calls you that all right and then so here's where we go the, uh, we got a fresh stack of stickers they're better than our last stickers we'd love to celebrate with you guys Um, If you're, if you're already requested a sticker because you completed a review, um, I'll get those to you this week. But if you just want some stickers for show merch, hit us up, skippydouglas at gmail.com. We'll get you some stickers. And uh, I promise we'll wrap this up. We'll stop talking about us here shortly and talking about the markets. But in celebration of the hundredth episode, this has nothing to do with black Friday or anything else. We took 60% off all premium subscriptions. We're doing that for the next two weeks. And there's two premium subscriptions. So there's a monthly premium subscription that is kind of like, hey, I'm a fan of the show, I want to support, I want to be part of this crew. Um, That really helps us with just like costs that occur from the show. So you can grab that membership. And then there's the I roll with Skippy and Dougal's premium membership. That's a yearly membership. It gets our portfolio reviews, everything, everything else. All the premium subscriptions get the show a day early. So you get it on Sunday instead of Saturday. And then sometimes we drop other uh, premium episodes, just like what we're thinking about with personal portfolios and those sorts of things. So that's available,
0: skippydougals.supercast.com. And one other, you mentioned this with the the second subscription, but at the beginning of the year, and we we might adjust this as time goes forward to different points, but the beginning of the year, what we do is at rebalance time, maybe I'll just say that at rebalance time, we let you know what we are investing in prior to other people knowing that. Not to say you should go and do that, but as always, things are research recommendations. And so, it's, you know, how we're uh, deploying our capital, just a good thing to know. And so, that's what you get first. And you heard to hear first type ish from us uh, with that second subscription.
1: We really bring you behind the curtain for that. So, so funny about that, Diggles is I was doing a portfolio review this week, um, trying to figure out where things stand. And I was down like 16 and a half percent for the year, and the SP was down. 16.2% or something, whatever I looked. So um, that kind of cracked me up because it's been a turbulent year. But right now I'm performing the market in a bad or matching the market performance in a bad year, which is great because historically in a good year, I've been outperforming. Um, so fun. We'll we'll do a breakdown of that, like you said, coming up uh, at rebalance time, which will probably be early January.
0: That sounds good. All right. Check that out skippy all right should we get into it oh i'm so excited we must all right what do kevin do kevin yeah he what do kevin do in home alone no kevin do rant
1: <laughs> you did not <laughs> okay well we're gonna talk black friday then I, is that like a is that a catchphrase that Dougal use uses in the workplace that kevin do rant for any time he has to do a rant I no, I I don't like to recycle my things. So this you is a... just came up with that on the fly, right here? Yeah, um, Marty Mick, goodness. All right, Black Friday time. Lots of scam deals out there. Lots of people claiming that the more you buy, the more you save, Diggles. This for the last three years has just been driving me up the wall. I'm ready to throw something through a window. I cannot take this anymore. All right. Of course, the more you buy, the more you save. That's how a percentage discount works. Would you agree? By
0: mathematics, yeah.
1: Okay, here's what: the more you buy, the more you save. Should actually be the more you spend, the more you spend. This is hogwash, Douglas. And I've I've just had it with this. All right. So <laughs> if someone goes, "Oh, you spend a hundred bucks, you get ten dollars off, but if you spend two hundred dollars, you get two hundred or er, sorry, you get twenty dollars off, and if you spend three hundred, you get thirty dollars off." What? People are dumb enough to fall for this. The more you buy, the more you save thing. No, you spent $270 instead of $90. That's how it works. I can't take it anymore. I've just had it up to, am I the only one? Is this a value investor thing or what?
0: You're not the only one. You're probably the, you're in the camp that's probably most aggressively (laughs) against this, but you're not the only one. I have an aside to talk about here too, but I'm going to let you rant a little more.
1: No, I mean, that's, that's largely it. So jump in with your side because I just can't handle it anymore. And I'm to the point where like it's lucky I do most of my shopping online because if I'm at the mattress store and they have some consumer associate walking up to me, giving me that catchphrase, I'm, it's not
0: going to be pretty, man. So my aside, this has nothing to do with Black Friday. My side was I went to go cancel Comcast two and a half years ago. Okay. Give or take maybe three years ago. Yeah. Um, I wanted to keep my internet, but done with the cable part. Oh, I bet you are paying for TV. You don't use to get a lower price on your internet. Is that true? That that was what was happening. So here, (laughs) but here's the conversation. So this guy, so I get on the phone, I got to give it to this, this rep I was talking to. I get on the phone. And the first thing he says is he goes, what's your goal of canceling? I said, my goal is to save money. And he said, well, I'm, through this conversation, I'm gonna let you know how the more you buy, the more you save.
1: No, okay. So anyway,
0: no. so oh yeah. So I'm, I'm gonna skip a lot of the detail, right? But by the end of this, I'm just like, dude, I'm I just all I want is internet. <laughs> like that's all I want. And uh, and he's trying to give me like mobile phone service and all this stuff, right? He's trying yeah, to package yeah. all these things.
1: Oh, because hey, Dugos, if you bring your cell phone to them, you're gonna save more money, don't you? Exactly. You gotta
0: spend more money, but let's not talk about that for a second. Exactly. But the line where he got me, again, skipping all the details for y'all because you don't need the whole story. The line where he got me is he said, sir, when you call me, did I not ask you why you called? I said, yeah. <laughs> he goes, and when I asked you why you called, did you not then tell me it was to save money? I said, yeah. And he goes, and then when you told me, I, I kid you not, this is how he talked to me. He goes, and when you told me that you wanted to save money, did I not then tell you? That the more you buy, the more you save. He goes, and then when I told you the more you buy, the more you save, did I not then tell you how to buy more? I said, yes, sir. And he goes, and then when I told you how to buy more, because the more you buy, the more you save, did you not then tell me you did not want to buy more? No, <laughs> this is exactly it, dude. You're like, hey, I was spending a hundred
1: bucks a month and I'd like to save, I'd like to save some money. I'd like to save 50 bucks a month. I'm willing to pay 50 bucks for my internet. And he goes, Hey, but Dougals, listen, if you spend $400 a month with Comcast, I could save you $150 a month. You told me you wanted to save money. I just tripled your savings. <laughs> <That> is, <yes. laughs> this
0: is what's happening. That, exactly.
1: It's it, true. It's this real. is the logic that everyone seems to use now. And it's just so
0: disconnected from reality. I think that right. I just had it this week. I mean, you've seen some of the there are like the tweets that are out there that are all about this is the real Black Friday sale. And then it shows like how far down all the tech stocks. Basically, are right? Similarly, it's kind of like you buy if you'd bought this for a hundred dollars a share, now you buy for ten dollars a share, you're saving $90 a share, right? And you could buy more of it. I mean it's it's just it's the same mentality that people be having everywhere. And Kathy Wood buys into it. Sorry, had oh my goodness. Yeah.
1: So if I wanted to save the most amount of money, what I should have done is buy Carvana at its peak, because. I could now be at a 97% discount. That's incredible savings. Not to mention there's no money in my brokerage account. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We can work with this. I'm going to call Vlad at Robinhood right now and get this tagline on their platform.
0: All right. Can I bring us back? Please. Can I bring us back? I would like to talk about the most recent investing memo from our boy, Howard Marks. I love Howard. As a, as another aside, I think
1: Howard Marks is the only Howard that I know of that I really, really like. He's overachieving for his name. The Duck? Well, actually, Howard the Duck, I like more than Howard
0: Marks. Sorry. <laughs> there you go. I am misspoke. There you go. So Howard Marks is a phenomenal investor and phenomenal writer. We brought Howard up a few times on the podcast. Enjoy reading his memos. Enjoy reading his books. He comes out with a memo. I don't know what it is. It seems like It's kind of whenever he wants to write it. It's not quite quarterly, I don't think, but it's roughly, I think, about that. I think it's quarterly and occasionally he skips. Okay, I could be wrong. Um, And they're just full of wisdom. I wouldn't say in most cases when I read them, it's not like, oh, that's something brand new. It's just the way he articulates these concepts. It's a reminder of the way to think about investing. That's why I like it. This latest one is called What Really Matters. He splits this memo into two different parts. The first part is about what doesn't matter. So he spends the first half talking about all the things that don't matter, which are most of the things that people want to bring up an example. This isn't exactly what he said, but an example would be something like what you just brought up. Like the more you spend, the more you save that does not matter, right? What does matter. And then he goes into the second half about what does matter. So let's hit on some of these points. I'm just going to drop some quotes, get your reaction. Okay. I might interject some things in here. First, obviously, no one should attach much significance to returns in one quarter or year. Investment performance is simply one result drawn from the full range of returns that could have materialized. And in the short term, it can be heavily influenced by random events. Thus, a single quarter's return is likely to be a very weak indicator of an investor's ability, if that. Yep. You, you've hit on a number of times how when people are looking at actively managed funds, They'll look at the previous X period of time, right? And then go, oh, let me extrapolate that into the future, right? And say like this, this quarter, this year, look that Kathy Wood had 125% in 2020. Let me get up into ARK innovation, right? Yep. People do that all the time. But there's so much in the short term that comes from who knows what. Like it could come from the earnings report. It could come from the fact that a CEO left. It could come from just blind luck. It could come from apes on like Wall Street bets. Like anything can happen in a short period of time. Love that one. Second one. We know short-term performance doesn't matter much. And yet, most of the investment committees I've sat on have had the latest quarter's performance as the first item on the agenda and devoted a meaningful portion of each meeting to it. The discussion is usually extensive, but it rarely leads to significant action. So why do we keep doing it? For the same reasons investors pay attention to forecasting, as described in The Illusion of Knowledge, another one of his memos. Everyone does it and it would be irresponsible not to. Another concept we've hit on a few times here is that if, if the whole crowd is doing X, Y, or Z, it feels like you need to take action. And so if you don't do X, Y, or Z, like no one gets fired for buying IBM, right? We brought that up, yep. Yep. right? Then you feel like you're foolish. You can get left behind, as FOMO. But usually sitting on your hands is the way to go. Oh, almost
1: always um yeah that quote really has me thinking he's saying even though everyone does it you have to do it it's table stakes and then even though it's table stakes you probably shouldn't act on it is that what he's saying
0: he's saying it's seen as table stakes like that's why everyone does it that's why we do it he's not saying that's why you should do it yeah because i i push back on
1: that a lot of times zooming out is just a much more appropriate view
0: All right. Then he he goes into this section where he talks about uh, how basically how most people should not invest in individual securities. You should just buy index funds, right? We talked about that a whole bunch here, right? But if you do want to invest in individual securities, here are four things you should do. Study companies and securities, assessing things like their earning potential. Buy the ones that can be purchased at attractive prices relative to their potential. Hold on to them as long as the company's earnings outlook and the attractiveness of the price remains intact and make changes only when those things cannot be reconfirmed or when something better comes along. It's so basic. (laughs) Like, it's so basic. There was, I don't think I actually uh, grabbed this quote in here, but I think there was some, I believe it was in this memo, some point where he basically says, like, this is the, investing is one of the only places that the easy thing to do is also the right thing to do like that's usually not the the way things are but anyway basic four things okay i got a couple more the good stuff is really at the end though
1: he yeah.
0: hits it he, he hits it with the all right ready think of participating in the long-term performance of the average as the main event and the active efforts to improve it on it as embroidery around the edges Here's what he's saying. If you think about your investing philosophy, your investing actions, that many times the quote unquote main event, like the core of what you're trying to do, people will say that that's the like the short term trade, find the macro event, take advantage of it. Like that's the main event. And he's saying, nah, think about long term performance at the average, like just doing the baseline thing. That's right. That's the main event. And then this other stuff, I love this phrase, embroidery around the edges. Like the other stuff is like small percent of portfolio, small percent of the time, you might see something that might be an edge, right? And Or, or, a, or something to take advantage of, right? And put it in there. Love that. Think of buying and selling as an expense item, not a profit center. I love the idea. Who? I love this. I love the idea of the automated factory of the future with its one man and one dog the dog's job is to keep the man from touching the machinery. And the man's job is to feed the dog. It's like,
1: it's so good. It's so good. It's really great. I mean, that that's so, because it's going back to his earlier point of like, typically when you're jumping in, people want to trade stocks too frequently. They are their own worst enemy. Right. So if, the factory is going to do great work for you because you made great purchasing decisions, or because you own an index fund. Then there's a whole section on volatility, which I bet we'll talk about. But that volatility is a distraction from the factory actually doing its job. So bring in a dog <laughs> to entertain yeah. you,
0: right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, I'm actually not going to talk about volatility, Ken. But I that wasn't one of the things I grabbed. I have one more quote okay. in here. This is so when he gets to the section about what does matter, what really matters, the number one thing he brings up, and I I really love this, is about asymmetry. Mm -hmm. That's the concept. So he brings up the concept of returns. Yeah. yeah. He brings up the concept of alpha, which is defined in a number of ways out in the world, but the way he defines alpha is having superior investor skills, right? Uh, Many times alpha might be uh, like a, Excess returns that you have on top of a benchmark or something along those lines. And he's just saying, like, if you're a better investor, then you have alpha, period. Okay, here's, here's the quote. For example, most of us have an inherent bias toward either aggressiveness or defensiveness. For this reason, it doesn't mean much if an, if an aggressive investor outperforms in a good year or defensive investor outperforms in a bad year. I'm going to pause mm-hmm. there. There's more to this, but I'm going to pause there. What he's saying for those out there, what he's saying is if you're an aggressive investor, that probably like, like a Kathy would be an aggressive investor as an example, right? Um, I'm also probably an aggressive investor. But yes. what, he, what he's saying is you, you're saying, I'm going I'm to go for the stocks that might rise five, six X, right? Like that's what I'm going after. If that's your strategy, then you outperforming in a good year is like expected. Like that's what those stocks do. If I mean, def- you have to. Yeah. yeah, you have to. It, it, you have it, to. Yeah. yeah. So celebrating that is like, nah. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a defensive investor, right, then what you're saying is you're limiting your downside. And so in a in a bad year, if you outperform, like that's what it's meant to do. That's your thing. Right. And so don't get all excited about that. That's the first part of the quote. Okay, here's the rest. So de- to determine whether they have alpha and produce asymmetry, we have to consider whether the aggressive, the aggressive investor is able to avoid the full loss. That is aggressiveness alone would produce in a bad market and whether the defensive investor can avoid missing out on too much of the gain when the market does well. That is the whole enchilada, Right. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Put some of that secret sauce, the chimichurri up in there. Mm.
1: I mean, this is the easiest example is like say Buffett versus Kathy Wood. Right. And there was a two and a half year period where Kathy Wood just looks like she's, crushing Berkshire Hathaway it was good times and now last I looked they were about even when you looked at five-year returns obviously over the course of Buffett's history he's crushed her what's going to happen is he's going to crush her but it's it ties in all these points you've talked about Dougals right your time horizon how short term it is and then yes if Kathy Wood is ever or that type of investor is ever going to make hay you have to do it while the market's riding high because her mark her portfolio went down 70, 80 percent recently. I don't know the exact number. And Buffett's just continued to chug along. But he, he at that point, he's pretty far behind in the race when you're looking at a five year view because she had
0: sprinted out, kind of tortoise on the hair there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the whole thing. If you're if you are an aggressive investor. And the market's performing, I'm making up numbers. If the market's, yeah. let's say, 20% a couple years in a row. Your portfolio, 50% a couple years in a row, right? Let's just say. In that third year, if the market's down 20%, your portfolio then can't be down 70%. That doesn't serve you well, right? If you are if you have 50%, 50%, and the market's down 20%, your portfolio could be down 25%, right? And you're like, okay. So, like, you're actually, when the market is down, you're reasonable or something. I'm just, you know, kind of making up numbers right there, right? Yep but that's the way to think about it. Defensive, very similar. If the market's up 20%, 20%, and your defensive portfolio might be up 15 to 18%, so not quite the market. The market's down mm-hmm. 20%, your portfolio's down 5%. Right? Yep. Like and that is that's what you have to see. It's what is the strategy of the investor or you in this circumstance and how do you make sure that when the opposite conditions are true that you just don't give the whole farm away basically during those times.
1: And this is where I'll go back to time horizon, like just a 10 year or a 20 year or a 30 year time horizon when evaluating an investor's alpha, their skill, as Marx is using it here, tells you the whole story. If you look at shorter periods that don't incorporate multiple business cycles and investing environments, you don't really know if they are like a five tool player that can perform in all places. They could just be someone who bought the high flyers, the high flyers went up And they just got lucky. Yeah, sorry, can we jump to the volatility piece? Because the volatility part is so good that I almost feel compelled to talk about it. I'm down. All right, so he specifically talks about uh, volatility as a temporary phenomenon and brings in a Buffett quote here. He says, Buffett will say, we prefer a lumpy 15% return to a smooth 12% return. I just want to break that down for a little bit for people who don't know, because I think a lot of the listeners prefer smooth 12% return, but Buffett doesn't care. I don't care about the short term. Like I I want to make money over decades and ideally more money, right? So a lumpy 15% return, it goes back to the example you are given before. It might be 30% one year, 0% the next, 30% the third year, whatever the case, it's all over the board. There's crazy volatility. And that is really hard to stomach as an investor. I'm sure everyone listening has watched their portfolio go down somewhere between 20 to 50% in their investing lifetime. And that is never fun. The behavioral (laughs) economics, economists will tell you exactly why, because you feel the pain of losing a dollar. It's twice as hurtful as the joy of gaining a dollar. Right? So. There's a reason that most people would prefer that smooth 12% return. With, why I feel compelled to talk about this is because with tech stocks going down in the public markets, 75%-ish this year, there's been a lot of debate about what's happening in the private markets because a lot of the private market investments haven't marked their investments and call this vest- venture capital or private equity. They haven't marked their true investments down. So it looks like the private markets are less volatile and therefore performing better today when that really their pi- price is just more disconnected to reality. Sorry,
0: let me pause and let you jump in. There's a lot here that I'm fascinated yeah. by. Yeah, I agreed. I think it's fascinating too. And to be clear, volatility comes up in this memo is one of the things that Howard Mark says does not matter. So it's one of the those things. And one of the reasons that Howard Marx says that volatility is used as a measure of risk is what you stated around just human behavior psychology. Another is because you can measure it. So risk otherwise is really hard to measure. Like to have a quantitative measure of risk can be difficult. And so like a relatively easy one is volatility. So you look at like the standard deviations, right, of, of someone's portfolio, a sharp ratio. Um, yeah. So that, that's what he brings up. But I, so just to talk my book for a second, uh, in one of my like quarterly portfolio summaries earlier this year, showed the volatilities for a couple years, right? And my portfolio of 2000, 2021, sorry, 2020 and 2021, partly for this reason, right? Is that like, in the end, I know for me, I have to be able to stomach that because like the volatility, it for me is not the riskiness. Like I believe this, it's not the riskiness yeah. of this portfolio. Right. Even you were just talking about and my portfolio did something a little bit similar. You were talking about your portfolio in this past quarter. It was behind the market. Now it's basically caught up to the market. Right. At the end of uh, the last quarter, my portfolio was down like 37 percent for the year. And now it's very close to where the market is. I mean, that's a that is monster volatility. Right. But that that is what the market does. Um, It's one of those things. Right. And so I think I think do you think it's very important for people to make sure you have that in mind?
1: Yeah. So this is, thank you for that context. Cause this is a frequent thing that Howard Marks talks about, including in his book, which is fabulous. If you haven't read it, it's called the most important thing and classic Howard Marks. He says like 17 things are the most important thing rather than one thing. Uh, but he's right. <laughs> so the what's important here though, is I often compare and contrast like investing in real estate to investing in equities, that smooth return I should say, investing in real estate often appears to have a smoother return because the transactions happen less frequently, because your money's tied up more, because if you have a payment stream from rental properties, it's fairly consistent. I just think it's important to know that it's not wrong for you to prefer a smooth 12% return. It means you'll make a little less money long-term, maybe, it might mean you'll make more money long term because you you could go in and say, I'm comfortable with that volatility. And then as you actually live through it, you could end up selling low and buying high, which is what your average person does. And that actually, even though there's a potential to make more money over the next 30 years, you end up with less simply because you don't like that
0: roller coaster ride. So just, you know, you know who had a smooth 20% return made off exactly. <laughs> yep it's not the way the market works. It's kind of, you, you'll see this everywhere. And we mentioned it here. The on average, something like this, the S&P 500 over the last hundred years has returned like 9%. The S&P 500 has never returned 9%. <laughs> like that is, that's the thing, right? It returns like 28%, 10%, right? Like yep. it, it it goes everywhere and then it averages out to this number, right? But and it's also the importance of something you've always brought up around like not checking the portfolio too often. Like for most people, it's probably a good idea is because then you don't see the lumps. If you check it your once a year, you get to see the 15% and like, that's what you see or whatever, you know, the percent mm-hmm. is. you don't mm-hmm. need to see the negative 25 in Q2. And that, right. Cause then you start thinking about what to do. You start, yep. you start kicking the dog out the house so you can touch the machinery and you should stay away from the machinery. Just much. go play with your dog. Is the moral <laughs> exactly. that exactly? I, I think. Sorry,
1: you got me excited about marks, and uh, I could talk about this all day. I imagine we better jump into the fishbowl and uh, switch to the next topic. This is good stuff, though. Thanks, Googles. All right, Reach in. I simply want to talk about uh, population demographics. Saw a really cool chart this week comparing the population of China and India as of today, based on estimates or This is really like January of next year, but let's just call it today. Um, This is from an economist via the UN. It is thought that India is now the most populous country in the world, just slightly surpassing China at 1.428 billion people, right? But what happens from here for the next 80 years is super interesting. China is expected to have a, a very quick decline. In their population, meaning by 2100, the year 2100, they're roughly going to have 700 million people. India climbs and climbs, peaks around 2060 um, at a value of like 1.7 billion people and stays above 1.5 million people through the end of the decade or the end of the century. Just fascinating to me. The other demographic stuff that you see is that um like the indonesia southeast asia based area also continues to grow pretty rapidly and then the um this is from memory but africa is expected to continue to have a uh, pretty aggressive population growth where the so called like old west world the europe's and the us's do not have that at all uh, japan falls off significantly too so i was like watching this stuff i don't ever make investment hypotheses off of it but I thought that bookkeeping is nice. Currently, according to the UN, India is now the most populous country in the world, and it will continue to be for the near future. But also, Dougals, everyone, when they talk about China and China's economy, talk about this giant, largely because of the population. And if the population gets cut in half in the next
0: 80 years, that changes things. So it's something to watch there. Yeah, it's the overly simplistic definition of like GDP. That we've mentioned here before population times productivity china's growth has largely come as you mentioned from population growth like you start to take that away now there's the productivity has increased over the last like bit too but not nearly at the same rate the us has largely we've had a combination of population growth and productivity for like three decades and then for the last 20 years i think both have been not so great, like that's why our GDP has not grown very quickly. It's like two percent a year, or something like that, over the last twenty years, right And so it's like not particularly fantastic for us um, but we we would have to flex on the productivity side of things, most likely, where some of these other countries will be flexing on the uh, population side, and if they can get their productivity underway like that's a, it's a catalyst for some a new world order the the thing that's interesting about that, and not to go
1: too, down too much of a rabbit hole, but the u s has has a mixed policy and what I think is a poor policy about allowing smart population growth, especially with highly educated people from all over the world that would like to come here. We've made that way too complicated. And everyone benefits from that, Douglas, because our GDP would continue to grow with these smart individuals who create jobs, often create uh, companies that allow for more economic opportunities for all. If we just choose, Kind of the China route, as it's shown in this graph, of like our population peaks and heads the wrong direction. I think ultimately that that leads to economic not hardship, but more economic challenges because it's much easier to have a thriving population
0: or a thriving economy when your population is growing. That's definitely right. We're gonna this next. Well, we know. Okay, two things we know. Uh, one is that twenty one, the year twenty one hundred, will not look like whatever that says it's going to look like, but oh, yeah. it's fascinating to like, look at the information. The second thing, maybe that one, we do know, the second thing we don't necessarily know, but I'll say, we know it is that there will be some changing world order. That doesn't mean the U S is going to fall apart. That doesn't mean any, but something is going to be different. Like mm-hmm. in the next, if you look at a hundred years ago, the world is very different, right? Something is going to be different. And so what is that difference? I'm fascinated to see. I won't be around. Okay. Which is probably best for everybody. You don't get to hear Douglas and on a some Saturday and or Monday in a, in the year twenty one hundred. But <laughs>
1: <laughs> what's in your fishbowl?
0: <laughs> okay, uh, I I there was a so there's a podcast uh, called Animal Spirits, and it's from the, the guys over at uh, Ritholtz uh, Wealth Management, and they have um, a whole bunch of graphs that they put out that were like uh, in conjunction with uh, one of their recent podcast episodes and I just pulled out a few of these graphs cuz I think they're interesting so I want I want to hit on them they had a bunch in here I pulled out like five okay so one is looking at the 10-year treasury rate from the year 1966 to 1980 so this was this was the period of really high inflation and also when the stock market um was like a what like, like what do they call it? Not frozen, but uh, stagnant. Like a, yeah, stagnant. There you go. Thank you. Um, and so that, that's the importance of that time period. But it's, it's fascinating to look at these rates. So in 1960, roughly, I'm looking at a chart. So there's going to be rough rates. Yeah. In 1960, roughly, it's like about four and a half percent, right? Was the uh, 10-year treasury rate. Which is so comparable the, to where it is today. We're, we're like three seven, I think, right? So roughly comparable yeah. to where we are today. By 1980, that rate was over 10%. 10.3 is what this was showing. So when you just start to I don't know, take a look at like what's possible, well, this is not the 1970s. Everything's different. right? I mean, like, not, not everything. So much is different. And so we're not saying this is what's going to happen. But right when, when, you, when people start to make these bets, like the market is making like a bet on the federal funds rate capping out at whatever, like four eight or five percent or whatever it might be who knows that could happen it could not happen but like ten percent was where to fight inflation where uh they had to end up going to at least in 1980 and then the next two years which aren't even on this graph were buck wild i'm not even yeah, gonna, crazy yeah
1: go i mean so i'm gonna talk out of both sides of my mouth here i hate when people do this because it it implies that it's like this is going to happen again But at the same point, I've done this to try and think about where rates could go because looking at history is important. So I was talking to a colleague that just bought a house uh, this week and they got a um, adjustable rate mortgage and she was going, you know, everyone says rates are going to go down. And I was like, wait, 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 everyone who, who is everyone? Like I think of predicting interest rates almost as predicting short-term stock performance, I don't know where it's going to go. I mean, I know what they're going to do in December, and that's about it. And then, depending on what pandemic shows up or what you know happens with the economy or what happens with elections or what happens with wars, that's where rates are going to go. So to prepare yourself for rates that could be ten percent or higher, I think is important, but I, I want to make any bets
0: as if you know where things are going because you simply don't yeah. Agreed. I, to your point, I think things like this are interesting just for the purpose of knowing what's possible historically. Like, But yeah. that doesn't mean it's probable. doesn't mean it's going to happen. Yeah. All right. You're going to hate the fact that I'm going to bring up this next one, but I'm going to bring it up because I like it. Okay, so this next graph is looking at personal savings rate in the U.S. versus credit card debt. Mm-hmm. This is from 2016 through current. And what you see is this credit card debt line that goes from, I'll just say near nil, not quite, but like pretty low, up and it's just a consistent up and to the right for the next four years until we hit the pandemic in 2020. And then a sharp decrease in credit card debt, which comes right along with a sharp increase from a previous flat line of savings. And those two kind of go hand in hand, right? You have the pandemic gets hit, money gets thrown around, People are able to pay off credit card debt because of the excess money and because spending goes down at the same time because people weren't going anywhere. And then we had like this Japanese style, like savings rate all of a sudden in the U.S., right? Which is unprecedented for us. And it, we don't have to go into that, but anyway, unprecedented for us. And that goes up and down a little bit until about a year and a half ago, right? In mid uh, 2021, then savings start to collapse and credit card debt just like it's it's still up and to the right as of right now there's like so who knows where that's gonna end up going but this is another situation where i know you want to yell at me because i keep bringing it up but i'm just saying that i think that americans are getting themselves into a cash situation that they're not prepared for debt going up savings going down people saying i don't need my job not bueno okay yeah no i i this is important to talk
1: about. I mean, it's just hard to fix. I think that's yeah, my yeah, challenge yeah, with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. The New York times had a piece this week and I, I didn't really want to shout it out because it felt, um, a little prescribed, but is about two different Thanksgivings and basically a Thanksgiving for the wealthy and a Thanksgiving for the folks that are struggling. And it had like, you know, the nicest hotel in Boston and their $135 uh, per plate brunch compared to the food bank, you know, just around the corner or wherever it was that was seeing record demand. And it does seem like we uh, just are so bipolar in terms of, you know, the people that are uh, paying their bills with credit card debt, which this graph clearly shows is increasing and other folks. I don't think you meant bipolar
0: there. Let's say um, no sensitive condition for folks diverging. But, no, I yeah, just mean, yeah, yeah, like bifurcated, yeah, yeah, there we go. Yeah, it's uh, it's real, right? I mean, the we've we've discussed inequality so much on this show, and like, this is where you the issues around that become exacerbated when you start to see charts like this. Um, like, this is a no bueno situation, yeah. I think you touched on it, but the thing
1: that's hard to articulate. Um, verbally about this graph is personal savings rates held steady between like 2016 and basically 2019, but credit card debt continued to climb up. It's not as clear as just these, are, these mirror each other in the opposite way. Like you might think, you know, basically your savings rate is the inverse of your credit card debt. It seems like Americans are more reliant on credit card debt than we used to
0: be. Seems like it. Okay, this next one. This is the market cap of Walt Disney compared to the market cap of Netflix. Now, the conversation I'm about to embark on here is way overly simplistic, but it's just more of, for me, one of those things where you go, like, really? Like, it was kind of like when you were talking about, was it a year ago or so, when you were talking about how Tesla was worth more than like every automaker in the history of the world or whatever. By like three or four times. Tesla
1: was. I'll d- four times it yep. was more than a trillion bucks in market cap and and the other the Fords the GMs the Toyotas um everyone else the VWs was yep. um a fraction of that it was
0: insane it still yep. is insane yep and that that's kind of what was the cognitive dissonance I think that like hit me kind of when I when I saw this so Disney 100 year old company it's Walt Disney they've got they got their theme parks they got their cruise parks. ships they got, you got- they got
1: I mean, the whole ESPN family of properties, which is Netflix cannot compare. So let's, since we're doing a direct comparison here, right? The things that Netflix does not have are decades old brands like Star Wars and (laughs) all the Disney properties. Marvel. Uh, It doesn't have the theme parks. It doesn't have the sports content. I mean, I'm sure there's more.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. And so you have, this graph goes from... I think it's probably 2013 through now, roughly. And the beginning of this graph makes sense. Kind of like, I mean, there's like a hundred billion dollar market cap difference, at least like between the two. And I'm like, okay, sure. I get it. And that's at a point when Netflix's market cap
1: is like in the low, I mean, it's maybe five billion bucks. Again, this is, so it's like 20 or 30 times greater Walt Disney to Netflix. That
0: Delta makes sense. Exactly. Um, then you let's just fast forward a few years. You get up to 2018 and Netflix for the first time surpasses Walt Disney and market cap. I'm just like, whoa, what? And this is not this is not a like if you go back 20 years, right? The Disney of 20 years ago, when you're coming off of the power of Pocahontas and Tarzan, where I was like, what is this company? It's this is not then. This is during the Bob Iger period of like purchasing Pixar and Star Wars. And yeah. Marvel, right? All that stuff. And 2018 is when Black Panther came out. I mean, so this is this is like a time for Disney. Yeah. Right. And Netflix passed it. Okay. Then there's a little more divergence. So if we just come up to where we are today, Disney is at roughly, I'm just gonna round $175 billion market cap. And Netflix is $125 billion market cap. So there's about 50% difference roughly between those two. I don't know what is cheap and what's expensive. Probably neither one of these is neither or or both of these are both, I don't know. But this is just like, something is wrong. I think like in the way that the world is, we know this, and this is again, overly simplistic. Something's wrong with the way that we are valuing something when you have these organizations kind of sitting the way that they are. Okay, so we're just going to call this a supersized episode because I want
1: to talk about this. All of Netflix's valuation, I would assume, I haven't done a deep dive, is basically about monthly subscriptions, and what they are able to charge for that monthly subscription, and then the churn rate, like how what customer retention looks like. Netflix has historically, in the streaming space, uh, performed best of all these competitors, right? And Disney just replaced their CEO, Bob Iger's back. Um, That happened, what, last week? One of the reasons for that is because there was a growth at all costs mentality at Disney. So, Their subscribership for Disney Plus looked great. Um, It was off the charts, but their churn rates were massive. And so if you're effectively paying money with marketing and advertising and promotions to get new subscribers in the door and they aren't quality subscribers and they leave frequently and then you have to pay money, more money to get that can be a losing game like that. You can effectively have such poor customer retention that you'd rather not have customers than the customers that have negative, I'll call it customer lifetime value here, right? That's so right. there's a lot of that going on here. And I think Netflix has proved that they're industry best in that class. So they probably deserve a valuation premium from that. But as you said, with all the pro you know, Netflix is going out and creating their organic content, They're You know, classics. They're movies that hopefully people watch 20 years from now. Disney has a 100 year head start on that sort of stuff. And the most valuable franchises in the space, whether that's Star Wars or Pixar or Marvel or whatever else, I mean, they seem to have everything. So this is fascinating stuff. I like to think that if Bob Art Iger gets the customer retention piece fixed, the valuation spreads. We'll get to a place
0: where they might make sense. And whether that means Netflix goes down more than Disney goes up or Disney, goes, who knows how that ends up manifesting itself. But yeah, I would I would I would I would think some there's it's even beyond that. I mean, because in a lot of ways, I'm going to use this word completely wrong. But uh, in a lot of ways, the core of like Disney's business is it's like a uh, a dividend business. And I don't mean when I say I'm using it wrong, I don't mean like cash dividends. I mean, you have this, these assets and the you say, what properties. is, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and how do you uh, make as much from those properties as possible, which is, and they have so many different ways to do it, which is the brilliance. You have shows, you have theme parks, you have toys, you have like other merchandise. It's like a, it's kind of wild. The number of things they, they the optionality they have is pretty buck wild. And I was amazed at how they, uh, they kind of lost all optionality for like a year. Or so and still like produce some kind of a business. And by that I mean they didn't have theme parks, cruise ships, like everything except for Disney Plus basically went away like overnight. Yep. It's kind of well. Anyway.
1: Well, that's where I so if both of these companies stopped creating new content tomorrow, I would think the value of Disney at that point is significantly greater than the value of Netflix. That's right. And Creating content is often about spending money, so I they don't do this. Uh, a really good analyst would do this, but it'd be so interesting to see of the 175 billion dollars that makes up Disney's market cap, where they think that value comes from—from from theme parks, sports, legacy properties, content. You know, this is a fascinating one. I've
0: talked. Yeah. I've talked too much. Let's keep it moving. Okay, next one is I'm gonna. I was gonna talk about this in a different order. But the next one here, I'm going to talk about bird, bird global. Okay. So there's this bird global. Exactly. There's this tweet about bird global from Allison Griswold. Uh, Bird global is the scooter company. One of those e-scooters. That's what would have been my guess. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So (laughs) bird global, little context when public via SPAC, I'm pretty sure about a year and a half ago, like $10 a share. It's now 24 cents a share. So $10, 24 cents. It's not what you're after. Also not what you're after is this. This is the the tweet. E-scooter company Bird trading at 24 cents a share after telling investors on Monday that its financial statements of the past two and a half years should no longer be relied upon. And there is substantial doubt about the company's ability to continue as a going concern. The thing about the statements of the last two and a half years is you went public a year and a half ago. That's all you have. This is This isn't like... Procter and Gamble goes, oh, we like we muffed up the last two and a half years, but look at the previous hundred. You know, what I mean? no, this is all that you've got, which I think is just a, it's just demonstrative of the the climate that we've been in, where people are just putting whatever they need to put out there to go public. I mean, so run away and um, here comes the lawsuits, right? What it happens sounds if you're like, what happens if you're on a bird? when they decide to no longer be a going concern like is that like an immediate (laughs) shutdown I don't know don't want to find out
1: (laughs) I mean that was a gimmick to start Uh, yeah I'm
0: happy we've moved on from the scooter era all right uh last thing which this is a natural transition to something else I want to talk about but we can go to your your uh fishbowl and come back this is another tweet but this one from Joe Weisenthal. It says 17% yields. Is anyone farming this? What this is showing that tweet by itself doesn't mean anything. But then it shows this graph, which is the graph of the yield to maturity of a Coinbase convertible note. Do we want to make this transition out? Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't wait to talk about this. Okay. So convertible note, give a little background. I personally I'm used to convertible notes in the private market, not in the public market. So where I've come around or uh, come upon them is you'll have, generally speaking, a, a younger startup and that startup hasn't quite figured out its valuation yet. And it's trying to raise early rounds of funding. So what they'll do is they'll release convertible notes. And so that is a piece of debt. So it's a, it's basically a loan. And that loan is then convertible to equity once they raise a big round from like actual investors. Like, that's the simplest kind of way to think about it in the private market. I hadn't really thought about these in the public market, but what this is, is a Coinbase publicly traded company, 0% coupon, because that is what you could have released, you know, about a year ago uh, Mm -hmm. that matures in 2026 that now has a 17% yield to maturity. Yeah. So I want to give a little more background um, and
1: like a real life example in the public space. And then first and foremost, say, guys, this is, this is definitely research recommendations. Don't go buy any of this nonsense. It's super interesting, but um, you'd have to be a very sophisticated investor to pull this off. And the reason these rates are high is because they're risky. So if I, from memory, um, in 2008, Buffett bought a bunch of, he provided some liquidity to Bank of America. He did that with convertible notes at an eight percent rate, and the reason he structured it that way, and the reason I mentioned Buffett is because he's one of the smartest investors ever. Is he was like, listen, if the world truly blows up, this company is going to pay me eight percent as if it's a bond. But if what happens, if what I expect to happen, I want that to be able to ride the upside of the equity when it returns to form. And I don't know, I, I don't know how he ended up in that trade. If he ended up with equity or. Um, bond payments or whatever. But that's like a simple way to think about. He's just protecting himself, giving him that optionality. And the company on the other side could benefit as well. Like when Coinbase was flying high, the the way they structured these payments were like, oh, this could be really good. This is a 0% payment for us. It's a 0% financing thing. Now, as you're going to talk about, when your stock goes way down, that often triggers things that changed the way this is structured. And now if this is changing hands, it changes hands at a rate that is no longer 0%, it's 17% or more with some of the other examples we're gonna talk about.
0: Yeah, yep. And so just to, to go basics for bonds, if you you release a bond, and then at the end of that maturity time period, you have to pay back the principal of the bond, or you get paid back the principal of the bond, right? If you're someone that's buying that bond, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have the coupon rate, which is how much you're getting paid, Along the way. So, what happens when like interest rates start to go up or bond prices start to go down, when stock prices start to go down, these securities also get hit. And so, you have an example here where, like, MicroStrategy is an example. They had a 0% coupon bond that they put out there. Uh, it's due in 2027. It's now trading at 33 cents on the dollar. So, whereas when someone would have to pay back the principal, if they paid, let's say, $100. Right. And in 2027, I'll we'll have to pay back $100. Yep. That's even. Now you're having to pay $33 for that $100. And so when you start to, when you pay that, or sorry, when you buy that, then this yield to maturity we're talking about, now you're getting actual like money, right? You're making 70 or 67 bucks um, over the next few years. So long as MicroStrategy, um, that's overly simplistic, but MicroStrategy needs to be a going concern at the time in order for you to get paid back, which is where a lot of the risk can come from.
1: Effectively. And to to try and explain that, like why would this why would a hundred dollars that was financed two or three years ago now trade at $33? It's because people are concerned about the viability of MicroStrategy. Yeah. And if MicroStrategy goes bust, The hundred dollars that you're supposed to get in 2027 becomes zero (laughs) dollars. So this is you're trying to get whatever money you're trying to get in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, right. But it is interesting to see. I mean, there's not just Coinbase and MicroStrategy. There's a whole list of companies here um, that have really struggled and that people have concerns about their viability. That have taken a financing that was at historic low rates. And now people have run away and turned it into a potential compelling investment opportunity if you're comfortable playing in the trash heap over here. Like that, and this is not the value investing trash heap. This I play in. This is like we don't know if this company will exist,
0: trash heap. Yeah, like Beyond Meat due 2027. It's trading at 25. So 25 cents in the dollar, yielding 36%. This is a company that produces plant-based meals that have their executives eating people's faces. Wait, I don't get that joke. You don't remember like three months ago when beyond meets, I think it was CFO or COO bit a man's nose. (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) This is, I, the credibility of this organization got shot immediately for me right there. So 36% you can keep your 36%. Was it right a idea. plant-based nose? I mean, that I don't know. That was unclear okay. in the article. Um okay. but no, but to your point, I mean, going back to the this is pure research recommendations, it's just interesting stuff because you have you have these high flyers. Like well, these, sorry. What were? Go back a year. High flyers like untouchable organizations at least in the the eyes of some folks out in the market. That were having HODL, um shiny eyes, right? Buying Bitcoin and whatnot. You have all these organizations: MicroStrategy, the ones that are mentioned in this Barron's piece that I uh, that I found, Coinbase, MicroStrategy, Beyond Meat, Peloton, Wayfair, Redfin, the Real Real, DraftKings, Carnival. That one snuck in there a little bit, and Affirm. Right. If you go back a year, like these companies were some of the hotness, right? Now they're saying. They're down you know, 40 plus percent, many of them much more than that. And so people are, to your point, they're just like, how do I get back whatever money given this risk that I might be able to get back on this bond that I took out? Um, and it's creating some risky opportunities uh, for those that want to take a gander at them. So yeah. I just think it's an there's interesting a, world. There's an analyst in here that so says
1: buying MicroStrategy 0% coupon is a better investment than buying their equity. Now, MicroStrategy is the weirdest company on earth on earth because they're not really a company anymore they have analytics arm that is worth about half a million bucks and then they own bitcoin and most of that bitcoin is financed with debt so it's entirely a bitcoin play but that's interesting if you were a person that said uh, like a total bitcoin bull to think that there might be a way to make the bitcoin bet that's not buying bitcoin that could be more lucrative is interesting right and you yeah. could get a 28 28- uh, yield 28% yield to maturity and micro strategy will exist. If say Bitcoin is above 20 K per coin, like it, it's just, that's how the
0: dynamics yep. work. So yep. um, fascinating stuff. Uh, you got something else in your fishbowl.
1: I think that's it, man. This was an awesome hundredth episode and we are so thankful to you. The listeners across all of our 65 countries. Uh, we have fun with this every week. We're super happy you're here. We don't plan on stopping anytime soon. Uh, Please rate and review the podcast if you haven't already. And uh, hit us up with listener mail. Hit us up with a sticker request. Or hit us up with a premium subscription to help the show. Yeah,
0: Thank you for 100 great episodes. It's been a load of fun doing this with Skippy. And a load of fun because of all you. Love hearing from you and just really love the support. So appreciate you all. Yeah, here's the last thing
1: I'd ask on that. This is unscripted, Douglas, but I think one of the things we might do for year-end is uh, put together like a bloopers episode. I, I think our track record is much better than Jim Cramer at this point. But if you uh, remember anything stupid we said, uh, send it that, send that our way via listener mail and we'll do some clips there so we can laugh at ourselves. Um, investing is hard and we're not going to be right 100% of the time. That's why we talk about research recommendations rather than investing in advice.
0: Thank you, everybody.
1: All right, peace.